Well, if you would, turn to Acts chapter 13. I'm, I'm excited about this series that we're launching through May. We're meeting every other Thursday, so take note of that. Lord willing, in the fall, we're going to resume every week. So uh, apologize that it's every other week, so take note. Uh, this series is entitled Turning the World Upside Down. Uh, Paul is one of my favorite biblical characters. There's no doubt about it. And we thought it would be great to spend some time looking at his three missionary journeys that are recorded in the book of Acts. So that is the plan. The co-teachers, uh, and I'm excited about this for this term, uh, Pastor Michael Venter, uh, who couldn't make it today, but he'll be co-teaching with me, as well as Dr. Tom Crago. And if you don't know Tom yet, you got to meet him. Uh, Tom has a doctorate in systematic theology from Dallas Seminary. He was my former chair at Cedarville. Absolutely brilliant, um, putting him on the spot, but a fine expositor of the word. And I assure you, you will be blessed. He's got more brains in his pinky than I have in my whole head. And so I, I'm just looking forward to sitting under his teaching and I know you will as well. So uh, he taught at Moody Bible Institute, or the Moody Institute, as it's often referred to, and also at Cedarville, where we co-taught together. But we're in Acts chapter 13 today, and we're, we're going to look at, for several weeks just at the first missionary journey. But I think you need to back up. And so I'm going to take you to chapter 12 before we just dive into the notes today. Actually, chapter 11, excuse me. And kind of paint the scene. Now, I realize most of us are very familiar with the book of Acts. But when the church was birthed in Acts chapter 2, it's 100% Jewish. It's not later till the, the gospel spreads and Gentiles are added in. And in 11, chapter 11, verse 19, it says, Now those who had been scattered because of the persecution of Stephen. Remember, Stephen is stoned. Chapters 5 through 7, 7 he is stoned, and Saul later becomes Paul, one of our main characters, was there. They laid the cloaks at his feet. We'll talk more about Paul as we go along, but I believe that Paul would have been a member of the Sanhedrin, which is the religious political body of the day. It's kind of like our Congress uh, had he lived a little bit longer or had continued in Judaism. Uh, the only way you would obtain a seat in the Sanhedrin is if someone croaked, somewhat like our Supreme Court. And so he had a position in, I think he was geared towards that because he tells us he was a prize student. He studied with one of the finest uh, rabbis of the day, Gamaliel. In fact, later Jewish writings state that when Gamaliel died, the glory of the Torah departed. So th that famous teacher, his prize student was Saul, later Paul. And he also had something that was very unique. He had a Roman citizenship. At least it was rare in the first century, but it was very rare for a Jew. So Paul had everything you would want, humanly speaking, uh, that is for sure. And then God intervened, and you know how he called Saul to himself. So in 19 of chapter 11, it says that the, that the Jews have scattered the, the church because of persecution uh, what they think is awful, God is using for his glory, isn't he? He told them, you're to take the gospel to Jerusalem, but to Judea, Samaria, and uttermost parts. It takes two persecutions in Acts to spread that gospel, to get it out. Uh, they became quite comfortable in Jerusalem, so the Lord turns up the heat. They became quite comfortable in Palestine, he turns up the heat. So it says they're scattered, and as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, Antioch, 
where we're headed, speaking the message to no one but Jews. Keep that in mind. There were some men from Cyprus and, and Cyrene among those who came to Antioch and began to speak to the Greeks. And as you know, they believed. And, and this rejoices in verse 22. The tension came to the church in Jerusalem. This is the mothership. This is like the Moody Church of Chicago. And they sent Barnabas to Antioch. So they send one of their best, one who was a Levi as well, Barnabas, and they send him to the church at Antioch. And that's where we're headed. That's where we're going to pick up in chapter 13. But it says that Barnabas in verse 25 takes Saul, later Paul, with him and brings him to Antioch. And the text tells us that at Antioch is where they're first called Christians. So we see a shift in the book of Acts. Acts is, is a book that is it's descriptive. It's not prescriptive. I hear people say, well, I'm a Acts kind of a church. Well, careful, because Acts is describing it's the establishment of the church. There are a lot of firsts that you'll not see later in church history. For instance, the coming of the Holy Spirit, etc. And so we're establishing the church. It's being built, and now we're moving it to Gentiles. And in Jerusalem, which was the hub for Christianity, it's going to start to move, I would argue, to Antioch. And that's where we are in chapter 13. So if you would turn there, in fact, end of chapter 12, it tells us that Barnabas and Saul, they took monies collected from Antioch to Jerusalem to help the needy. They've gone back to now Antioch. And if all these names are confusing, just bear with us. My wife is not a person who loves maps. <laughs> she doesn't love the names and all the dates and all that stuff. I, I thrive on it, but uh, I know it's not everyone's cup of tea. So just bear with us. Chapter 13, verse 1. Now there was those prophets and teachers in the church at Antioch. Remember, this is where they're first called Christians. It becomes a major hub. It's where Gentiles and Jews are becoming uh, Christians. And we see a list of names, Barnabas, Simeon called Niger, Lucius the Cyrenian, Manian, and the close, who was a close friend of Herod the Tatriarch from childhood, and Saul. While they were serving the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, and one of the things you want to watch as you go through the book of Acts, prayer and the Holy Spirit are mentioned almost in every chapter, directly or indirectly. It's key. If you want to see the church thrive, you want to see the church grow, you better be in prayer as a body of believers and as individuals. It says, while they were serving the Lord and fasting, the Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul. Here they are, the dynamic duo. For the work to which I have called them, that after they had fasted and prayed and placed their hands on them, they sent them off. So let's look at the notes. Let's, let's back up. Let's look at where we are uh, geographically, etc., Again, we're looking at this region of the Mediterranean. Our Antioch is over here. It's in, on the border of modern Syria and Turkey today. Uh, been there. Uh, wouldn't recommend it now, but <laughs> was there at one point. Uh, and we're, we're going to head to Cyprus. We'll talk about this island. And then this region, uh, which is called Galatia in the Roman Empire era, and that is southern uh, Turkey today, modern Turkey in that area. Paul will cover, our dynamic duel will cover over 900 miles. That's huge. And that day, if you're hoofing it, you could get 15 miles in by foot. Um, and some of this is by boat, nonetheless. But we're talking a huge 
parcel of territory that they're going to cover on this first missionary journey. And, and today we're going to talk about why would they go to Crete? Why didn't you just gone all the way around to Tarsus? I mean, that's your hometown, Paul. It would seem that's the territory you know best. Why wouldn't you go there first? So we'll talk about that because that's huge. But again, we're primarily covering on the first missionary journey, just Cyprus and the region called Galatia, that southern part. And uh, next week we'll look at, or two weeks from now, we'll look at that more in detail. There in your notes, we're told that this mission is launched through the Holy Spirit. Did you catch that? This wasn't just a whim that they decided, hey, we need to do this. No, this is the Spirit leading them. As they're bathed in prayer, as they're looking to what God would have, uh, the Spirit is guiding them, leading them. And I love the ethnic diversity or that which is represented. I, I put a red dot by all the names that are mentioned there in the first chart of, of chapter 13. You have Cyrene, which is northern Africa today uh, in this region. Of course, we certainly have those from this region. We have someone from Cyprus. Who's from Cyprus among this group? Do you remember? Who's? Barnabas. Barnabas is from this region. That's, that's his hometown. Interesting, huh? And then, of course, Tarsus is going to be uh, Saul slash Paul. Jewish, they're, they're part of what's called the diaspora, the, the scattered Jews. So uh, from the time of the exiles and the destruction of Jerusalem, uh, you would have Jews scattered there. You also have Jews that are fleeing, Jewish Christians who are fleeing the, the persecution going on in Israel. So they would be uh, fleeing as well. But you have quite a diversity there as the Jews are being scattered. And down at the bottom of your notes there on the first page, I talk about three of the fellows that we don't often hear about or study. Simeon called Niger. That, that Niger means black. Um, <clears throat> and it, it could be he's Mr. Black, or it could be that's a region that he's from. We just don't know. Uh, that wouldn't be very politically correct today, but uh, nonetheless, that's how it was seen then. Lucius the Cyrenian, uh, we know that there's a prominent Jewish uh, dwellings on the north side uh, of Africa, uh, for instance, in Alexandria and Egypt. That's where Joseph and Mary took baby Jesus. So there, are, uh, in fact, in this area, you have uh, the largest Jewish population out of, outside of Jerusalem in the first century. So very significant that you'd have someone from that region. And then the last name is very intriguing because Luke tells us that he is a friend of Herod Antipas. Now, who's Herod Antipas? Help me out. Who is he in Scripture? John the Baptist. He took John's the head, John the Baptist's head. He's the one often referred to as simply as Herod. It's who Jesus appeared before in the trial. Remember? That's Herod Antipas. And so <clears throat> that he's a friend of his uh, would indicate, and Keener mentions this in his, his uh, four-volume commentary on Acts, or three volumes, is it three or four? I think it's three. Uh, if you have, and each one is like this. So if you, you have trouble reading at night, just pick up Keener's work on Acts. Um, <clears throat> he is, uh, Keener is quite the uh, <laughs> commentator. He was working on John, and it, I think it was John, uh, and he, he, maybe it was Matthew, but it was a footnote on the miracles, which led to two-volume work on the miracles. Then he went back to writing his commentary on Matthew. 
when people have nothing better to do, right? Uh, but his commentary on Acts is good. But he says it's a particular designation for those close to the ruler. Uh, and so what it tells us is this is a prominent figure that is involved here. And on page two of the notes, we're told that these men are serving the Lord. Did you just catch that? Look at, look at verse two. It says, while they were serving the Lord and fasting. Think about this for a minute. Antioch is about to send some of their stellar volunteers, their stellar leaders. They're not sending the ones that are second class among their volunteers. And I, some of you own your own business. Can you imagine sending your best employee and saying, bye-bye, go ahead and work on another company? Yeah, you're smiling. You're saying, no way, Jose. Can you imagine in church work <laughs> saying, okay, my best volunteers in tech, like Nate over here, he's not a volunteer, but so grateful for Nate, uh, saying, yeah, we, we want to send you over to another church. Are you kidding? No way. I mean, this is a sacrifice. It was a sacrifice for the church in Jerusalem. It's a sacrifice for the church in Antioch. And who are your leaders? They're the ones serving. They're the ones fasting. They're the ones involved. It's not the ones pontificating and writing books. It's the ones that are actively doing the work. And those are the ones. And I know those of you in ministry, uh, when you disciple and train and work with young men and women, that's what I'm looking for. I'm looking for those teens that are heavily involved. Those are the ones that I've got a bullseye on their back. Get those involved, you know, uh, because they're serving. They're doing the work. And that's the idea here. Well, let's go back to the text and let's look at this in verses 4 through 12. So Barnabas and Saul sent out by the Holy Spirit. Watch that because the Holy Spirit will be mentioned several times here in the text. Went down to Seleucia. Now that is the port for Antioch if this map isn't very good. But you see Antioch, and it's a few miles away is Seleucia, which is the port. And so they go to the port. From there, they sail to Cyprus. And when they arrive in Salamis, this is one of the towns of Cyprus, they begin to proclaim the word of God. Now notice where? In the Jewish synagogue. Now they also had John. This is probably John Mark as their assistant. Well, we know it is John Mark. When they had crossed over the whole island as far as Paphos, they found a magician. A Jewish, now watch this, false prophet. That is the only Jewish false prophet that is mentioned in the book of Acts. And here he is. And his name, son of Jesus. <laughs> Who was with the proconsul, Sergius Paulus, an intelligent man. The proconsul summoned Barnabas and Saul and wanted to hear the word of God. But the magician, Elymas, this is the Jewish false prophet, um, opposed them, trying to turn the proconsul away from the faith. Wow. But Saul, also known as Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, there it is again, stared straight at him. You just get that idea, don't you? This is the, the dad glare. This is the teacher glare, right? <clears throat> and said, you who are full of deceit and on wrongdoing, that you are the son of the devil, <laughs> you're not son of Jesus, you're son of Beelzebub, you enemy of all unrighteousness. Will you not stop making crooked and straight paths of the Lord? Now look, the hand of the Lord is against you and you will be blind, unable to see the sun for a time. And immediately uh, it says that 
the, the mistiness and darkness came over him and he went around seeking people to lead him by the hand. Then when the proconsul saw what had happened, and this was all done right in front of him, says he believed because he was greatly astounded at the teaching about the Lord. Let's look at this text. And again, the involvement of the Holy Spirit is key, isn't it here? As you see in this ministry, as they, they move in sharing the gospel, and again, that is mentioned to you. And I've also stated that Barnabas is the hometown why Cyprus? <clears throat> Let me give you a few reasons why Cyprus would be so key. Not only is it a very large island, in fact, it's the third largest island in the Mediterranean, but it's equal distance from Africa, Asia, and Europe. So if you're looking for a nice hub and a center, it's like the crossroads of America. This is crossroads of the Mediterranean. It would be Cyprus. Key location for the gospel. But it's, it's also significant, not only because of the language and location, but also because of people groups. It was inhabited in the first century by Egyptians, Persians, Greeks, and the list goes on. You want to get that gospel out and get it to all these local groups that then can take it and distribute it? Cyprus is vital. Now, obviously, the Holy Spirit is one who's guiding this. They're traveling by boat. And on the next page, there's a photo of a first century Roman, Greco-Roman uh, ship. But I thought you'd find this intriguing. To travel by boat in the first century, uh, you were expected to bring your own food, your own lodging. And most likely you stayed on the upper deck is where you would sleep and live. And so that's mentioned there. Uh, but uh, also you'd not only bring your food and, and, and your bedding, but also your cooking utensils, everything. You're expected to take care of yourself. No one's going to do that for you. Uh, this is not the uh, SS Minnow, right, that uh, you're on. The population of Salmis, the town that we're headed to, uh, which is the first major city after you land on Cyprus, is about 150,000 people in the first century. That's large. That's larger than Carmel, isn't it? I think Carmel's, what, 100,000? No, that's not right. Is it about 100,000? Yeah, so this is larger than Carmel. Whew, can you believe it? And again, uh, we know that it is a major Jewish center. The text alone tells us what? Where'd they go first? Synagogue, obvious. So what do we know? There's at least a Jewish population there, right? So the question is, why? Why does Paul, who has been called as an apostle to the Gentiles, begin his ministry. In fact, you'll see this time and time again in his missionary journeys. Why does he begin with the synagogue? Let's just jot a few things down. Why? What do we know? Why would he begin at a synagogue? I'm sorry. Ooh. Yeah, there is, a, there is a common thread, isn't there? Jesus is the fulfillment. He's the Meshua. I mean, he's the fulfillment of the law. And so it's an audience. It's far different than going to uh, the Athenian temple, for instance, right? Uh, very good. In fact, I didn't even think about that one. That was good. There is credentials, <laughs> good and bad, right? I mean, his reputation will spread. In fact, some of the Jewish leaders will follow uh, Paul, as we will see, and say, hey, don't believe this guy. Similar to the false prophet we meet here in this text. But um, yeah, there are credentials. Paul can say, hey, I studied with Gamaliel. Um, I'm from Jerusalem. 
I, I was sent to Jerusalem to study as a boy, but my Jewish family is from Tarsus, and we are devout. I mean, he, he states this elsewhere, right? Galatians, Philippians. I am a Hebrew of Hebrews. I, I can speak Aramaic. I know the local language. I also know Hebrew. I mean, so he's got some credentials that are very prestigious. Yeah, right. Yeah, he knows the Old Testament, right? He knows the Hebrew scriptures. Yeah, Jamie. <laughs> yeah, it's, it was to the, what does Paul tell us in Romans? Jew first, then the Gentile. That's my target. Well, this is what God intended. Yeah. You both be on that in Romans 9, 3. Paul says, for I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off of Christ for the sake of my brothers, those of my own race. Yeah, yeah, there is, he would love for them to know, great, Romans 9, great text. Yeah, Romans 1, Romans 9, even Romans 11. Those are key texts for this and support of this. What else? Well, yeah, the Holy Spirit is driving this. I'm going to put one more and it's practical. Synagogue comes from the Greek term synagoge, which means together. Uh, this is a gathering spot, right? Where are you going to find an audience? Oh, at the synagogue, right? As they're doing the prayers, as they gather for... Uh, synagogue was, was not to offer up a place to offer up sacrifice. It was a place to gather for fellowship, for prayer, etc. And so that's why he's there. That would be a great place to go. So those are some reasons, I think, that why Paul will target the synagogue's first valid reasons. And, and you're going to, again, watch that as we go through the missionary journeys. It will dictate as well where Paul will go. There are towns that he does not, that are not mentioned in the book of Acts. And we know archaeologically there's no Jewish presence in those towns. He will bypass some cities, particularly, I think, in Greece. And you go, why did he bypass that town? It was a, Amphipolis was a big town in the first century. Well, it had no Jewish presence that we know of. So it's just intriguing as you watch where he lands as he, he moves, of course, under the direction of the Holy Spirit. So he will move from Salmis all the way over to Paphos. And again, this is on the other side of the island. And this is there in your notes under verse 6. This is about 115 miles away uh, across this island. He will move. And there's <clears throat> God's timing is perfect. Uh, you know, the, folks will talk about the time between the Old and the New Testament as the time in which God is silent because there's no special revelation being given. You know, the Old Testament canon is closed and it's not until later that we have the New Testament canon. God is not silent. <laughs> God is orchestrating events. It is not a coincidence that Rome is in power. They bring with, Rome brings Pax Romana. It brings peace, but it also brings an infrastructure that has not been seen in its likes ever. Now, I know the Persians have done quite a, a deal with the postal system, etc., but it's the Romans who built the roads. And they have a major road that's built from Salmas all the way to Paphos. How nice. 
for the gospel to go forward. With the Roman Empire, you also have one common language, which is Greek. So you could have believers from Northern Africa share the gospel to those living in Galatia. Oh, it might sound like they're from the South, but nonetheless, they speak Greek and they have a common tongue. So isn't that exciting? I, I just, you see what God is doing in the midst of this. And yes, uh, Claudius and then Nero will be on the throne and they do great damage to the, to the cause of Christ. And yet even the Lord uses that, doesn't he? Uh, it's centuries later that folks call their dogs Nero and they call their sons Paul. <laughs> you get the idea. And with that, the Lord is speaking on a phone. Yes, there we go. Well, let's move along and let's look at the text. And you can see, again, there, I, I have no doubt that Paul preached the gospel as he moved along uh, in these various towns, but his focus is here. And again, it has uh, a Jewish presence but we're also told it's the residence of the Roman proconsular. The Roman proconsul at the time, and I have this there in your notes, is we're going to see actually on the next page when we get to this, is Lucius Sergius Paulus. And we'll get to that in a minute because that is extremely significant to the biblical story. And you say, how can that be? Well, we'll get there in a minute. But before we get to him, we meet this, this magician by the name of Bar-Jesus a son of Joseph, Joshua, or son of Jesus. And there's such irony, isn't there, between Elymas and Saul? And on the next page, there's a chart there for you. One's a false prophet, one's a true prophet. One is blinded and needs someone to lead him. The other one provides spiritual insight and leads others. One is full of deception, the other is full of the Spirit. And in contrast to what we see between these two men, we see here that this magician, this false prophet, is seeking to undermine the gospel. And in particular, he's not wanting the proconsul to embrace this good news. It's interesting that a Jewish prophet has the proconsul's ear, isn't it? Uh, he's given credence to him. They both suffered from blindness. Uh, yeah, oh, yeah, it's a fun study would be to, not only have we contrasted them, it would be to compare them. Both Saul and the magician need the gospel. Both are blinded at some points in their ministry. Both have a message to proclaim. I mean, well, you could go on, right? And that, that's what's, if, if you, to improve your Bible study, not only just contrast, but also compare. Look through these things. So that, that, that is very helpful. And it's certainly much there. But I want to talk about the proconsul. We have historical evidence, archaeological, I should say, evidence that this man existed. I have an inscription here from the first century. So we know his full name. It's three names, which was common of Roman citizens. Saul slash Paul would have had three names as a Roman citizen. He adopts, which is not uncommon, a Roman official's name for part of his name. And this is where I believe we get Paul. It's from this proconsul. You say, well, why? Why is that so significant? Because this proconsul is really the first major political leader that will become a believer, and he's very influential in the gospel. Um, Pisidian Antioch, we'll look at this in a minute, but when Saul and Barnabas leave Cyprus, the first place they go to southern Turkey is Pisidian Antioch. That is Paulus' hometown. 
I think he, he's probably already wrote an introduction. Let me, let me introduce you to my dear friends, Barnabas. You know how it is. That's a political game. Let me introduce you to Barnabas and Saul slash Paul. He, he even took my name. He's a good man. Listen to the message. Yeah, yeah. I, I think that's part of what's going on here. I could be reading too much into the text. But um, <clears throat> unlike Pilate, Pontius Pilate, or Felix or Festus, in the province of, Syria, well, down from Syria, Palestine, um, they have troops under them. A proconsul would have no troops. This is a stable area. Rome didn't need to defend Cyprus. They needed to defend Palestine. They needed a buffer zone on the further outskirts of Turkey, etc., but not in Cyprus. And so he's a political figure that kind of manages to make sure everything's running smoothly and taxes are collected, et cetera, et cetera. He is significant, uh, and you can read more about that under Claudius and, and what uh, he's afforded. But again, he's from Pisidian Antioch. And again, that becomes key because in 1314, we're told that's the first place that they arrive, that is Barnabas and Saul. And so again, most likely this is where Saul will pick up that name. Any questions on this? Again, Saul slash Paul has Roman citizenship. Don't forget that. Uh, that is very key. Uh, it's unusual for a Jew. What's more unusual is we know elsewhere in the New Testament that Paul inherited his Roman citizenship, which is even more significant. He didn't buy it. This is something that was given down to him from his family. Uh, and if you remember the whole scene when Paul is taken to Caesarea, he's arrested, remember this, and he, 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 he's taken from Jerusalem to Caesarea, and there's a letter of introduction. Paul will use that card because the leader there will say, well, I have Roman citizenship too. Yeah, well, based on his name, most likely he obtained it in a ill fashion, <laughs> not Paul. And so Paul played the trump card and said, no, I'm a Roman citizen. He'll use it in Philippi as well. We'll see that later. If you remember in Philippi, they beat him, and that was not permitted of a Roman citizen. He had to have a fair trial first, and they didn't do it. And he saves the card for later, and you have to ask why. Why didn't he use it before they beat him? He waits till the next morning. But if you remember, the magistrates in Philippi were scared spitless. Why? Because they would, they would lose their tax exemption they could lose a ton of benefits from Rome if you touch one of their own. So it gives you an idea of how prestigious this Roman citizenship is. But Paul taking on Paulos's name, I think he's even further solidifying this connection, which is, which is so important, I think, in trying to get the gospel out. Yeah, Kyle. Well, often that's given as someone who is wise, someone who's astute, someone who is held in high esteem. So in other words, this isn't just some common yo-yo. That This is someone who people look to as a proconsul. We don't know a lot about him, obviously, uh, historical records other than this inscription uh, that was found. But um, it would indicate that when used, if, if I'm correct, when used by New Testament writers, Greco-Roman writers, as indicate this is someone of, of prestige, um, which further strengthens, you know, remember Paul's writing to Theophilus to show 
And the Luke Acts, written by Dr. Luke, is to show that this gospel is for everyone. And, and it's also one that uh, should be embraced. And so to highlight that prestigious people like Paulus is embracing it, you too can embrace it. But also common people can embrace it, which is highlighted as well in Luke Acts. Any other questions? That's good. Good, good, good. All right, well, let's go back. And we're told in verses 10 and 11 that our dear magician who can't seem to keep his mouth shut, uh, he's not struck with uh, the inability to speak. He's struck with blindness. And I always thought that was strange. If I was to strike him, it, well, I'd be dead. But if I had to strike him, at least make sure he can't talk. Man who speaks with forked tongue, right? Well, the idea here is, and it's seen throughout Scripture, it was seen as a sign of cursing. Now, if someone's blind today, careful, because John 9, the man who's born blind, uh, the disciples asked, who sinned? Remember that whole scene? And Jesus said, neither his parents nor him, but so that God might be glorified. So we want to be careful. But often in Scripture, blindness is associated with sin. It's also associated with um, spiritual, lack of spiritual vitality. Uh, it's interesting, we're, we're looking at the blind man in Luke on Sunday morning, this coming Sunday. And uh, it's clear, it's a sign that he, he's not in the realm of belief yet. Uh, and what's interesting is who should see, doesn't see, and who does see, uh, doesn't see. And so there's that idea going on. And remember, Isaiah is clear, when the Messiah comes, he will give sight to the blind. He will make them see. And so it's very significant. Yep. That's that, really, that would take my breath. Yeah, that's really interesting. Is the uh, blind man in Jericho in Luke 18, the text, uh, he could have, see, he, he's clear he used to see. He says, restore my eyesight. Whereas in John 9, we're told uh, three times the man was born blind. But anyway, thank you. Interesting spot, uh, highlight there. Nonetheless, he's struck blind. Go back to the notes. Look at there at the bottom of page three. And again, the contrast should not be missed. Here you have a Jew who is a self-proclaimed prophet, will not respond to the gospel. And here you have a Gentile, nonetheless a Roman official, who responds to the gospel. And uh, that's interesting as well in this whole process that's taking place. Well, you say, Hafidetz, thank you. I got up early for a nice a geography lesson, history lesson. But, but what's the significance here for me? Uh, I'm not going to meet Paulus until I get to heaven. So what do we do with this? Well, let me give you some things to hang on your beak today to take with you. As I look at this text, there's three intersects. The first of these is worship and missions go hand in hand, don't they? And they're seen as key tasks of the church. I love what Daryl Bach wrote in his commentary. We build churches not just to go in for worship, but also to go out with God's heart for people. At Community Bible, we're looking to break ground this fall for a church building. And there's been a lot of discussion. Well, what is the church building for? Why are we building a church building? What does that mean? And God loves us to look beyond our own needs, doesn't he? 
And I look at the church at Antioch, a church that, I mean, man, they're on the cutting edge. They got some of the stellars in the Christian faith, and yet they're sending them out. And again, I just think, oh, what a sacrifice you're making for the cause of Christ. Look at 1 Thessalonians, if you would. I got some time. This is good. 1 Thessalonians. In chapter 1, that's where I just want to look at, verses 4 through 10. One of my prayers for us as we study these missionary journeys is as you then read Paul's epistles, you give more attention to the intro and the conclusion of the letters because it'll tie in more so with Acts. And some of these names and these places will mean so much more. But he says in verse 4, We know, brothers and sisters, loved by God, that he has chosen you, and that our gospel did not come to you merely in words, but on the power and in the Holy Spirit and with deep conviction. And you became imitators of us when you received a message from joy that comes from the Holy Spirit. As a result, you became example of all the believers to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. That's modern Greece. All right, this will be Paul's second missionary journey that he will share the gospel to folks at Thessaloniki. For from the message of the Lord is echoed forth, not just in Macedonia and Achaia, but in every place reports of your faith in God have spread so that we do not need to say anything. For people everywhere know how you've welcomed us and turned to God from idols, which tells us what? It's predominantly a Gentile congregation, not a Jewish congregation. They didn't worship formal idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven. And just love it. You, you see God moving through Saul and Barnabas. I mean, how does the book of Acts end? Where is Saul? Paul. Writing a series of commentaries in a local church. Leading the charge in a parachurch ministry. No, he's imprisoned. And the text tells us he's rejoicing because it's not about Paul. It's about the gospel. And we're going to see that as we move through. Secondly, as we look at this text and think through what the implications are, evangelism is not the mere exchanging of views among people or a conversation about different ideologies. It's more than that. The gospel we preach is the key to eternal salvation. It's easy to get that lost, that ball in the weeds, isn't it? And I, I look at the church at Corinth, and so much of that church took on its culture. And we have to be very careful that the gospel isn't watered down or sharing the stage with another issue. It can't. That's, it's no longer the gospel. And the church will become anemic. And some would argue that's what's happened to the church in America. There could be some grounds for that argument. Jude 3 talks about this. And Jude is interesting because the false teachers are now in the camp. Early on here, as we're looking at Paul's journeys, and as we move, at this stage, the false prophets are outside. That will not be the case by the time the third missionary journey comes into play. They now have a foot in the door. They're sitting at the table. <laughs> so be careful, O church. And then third, it is the work of the Holy Spirit through the power of the Word that will change lives. Right, Zechariah 4, not by strength, not by power, but by my spirit. And so as we look through the book of Acts, as we study these journeys, how is the world turned upside down? Because literally, that's how it's viewed in the first century. How is that done? Through the power of the spirit. It wasn't Paul. 
Yeah, he's bright. Yeah, he's gifted. It wasn't Barnabas who was trained as a Levi. Now, these were men who were committed to the things of the Lord and dependent on the Spirit. And that's what we need, right? That's what we need to be as men leading in our homes, leading in our marriages. If you're married, our children, our parachurch ministries in the church. It's great we're giving out food. It's great we're building a building. But if the Holy Spirit isn't going before us, you might as well close the doors and join Salvation Army or uh, join Good, Goodwill. I mean, and, and there's nothing wrong with those, ministry, those organizations. But what are we about? We're about the gospel. And we can't, can't lose sight of that. Well, I'm starting to preach. So let me give you uh, two things to run with today as well in your notes. You'll notice there's, uh, if you've just joined us more recently, you'll see there's a fifth page. You know, my goodness, what's going on here? Uh, we have a group of young men. They're not here today, but they join us. They're homeschooled, and they're using this time to also as a Bible class so the last page is further study for them, but it, I know I've had guys as well say, what do you recommend that I read on, for instance, the life of Paul? And I've given you some books there. If you want to star one of them, I would do John McRae, Paul, His Life and His Teaching. It's an excellent book if you want an overview. Um, the most recent one is an illustrated guide to the Apostle Paul that came out in 2021. I have not looked at it personally, uh, just read some things online. It looks good. And you can read more on that last page. But the, for further thought is a challenge for you this week. And this challenge is to all of us. But when's the last time you've shared the gospel with someone? And uh, that I'm speaking to myself. Uh, oh, yeah, I've said Jesus loves you, or oh, yeah, you know, the Lord's in charge, or, you know, you'll give those little zingers. But when's the last time we've just said, hey, I want to share with you the hope that I have? Let me tell you about the good news. So let me challenge you this week to pray that the Lord would lay one person, just one, across your path. And then the kicker is when it comes, and I believe it will if you're sincere about your prayer, then taking that opportunity, say, hey. And that may mean you need to carry uh, maybe a track in your wallet, have something ready to say, let me walk you through this and I'll leave this with you. And then follow up. Don't just let them hang in. Lord, we thank you for uh, your word. We thank you for the life of Paul and Barnabas and even these names that are just mentioned once in passing in the text and yet you know they, they play a key role and what a day when we'll get to meet those who've gone before us, these giants in the faith whose shoulders we stand on. But Lord, we've been called to serve now. We got our Paphos. We've got our Cyprus. We have our Pisidian Antioch. And so, Lord, may we be found faithful in sharing the gospel. Thank you for these men. Bless them today and this weekend. Go before them in the power of the Spirit, the power of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Have a great day. Lord bless.